0: Welcome to The Cut on Tuesdays on Thursday. I'm Stella Bugby, editor-in-chief of The Cut. This is How I Get It Done, The Cut's series about ambitious women and how they live, how they deal with their inboxes, people's feelings, their grocery shopping, their morning routines. It's part advice column, part love letter, part voyeurism. This week I spoke with Tamara Mellon, who founded the luxury shoe brand Jimmy Choo in the 90s. Back then, Jimmy Choo was a kind of sex-in-the-city sort of shoe. Tamara designed many of those shoes, and rich and famous women wore them. And just a few years after starting that company, she was rich and famous herself. She told me that fame wasn't completely new to her, though. Her mother had been a model in England, and her father held a very unusual place in show business. I read that your dad was a stunt double for Rock
1: Hudson. Is that true? They looked identical. Wow. When, yes. Handsome. My dad was a very handsome guy. He was six foot four, very handsome. And uh, he was his stunt double before he went into business. He was really young. He was in his 20s when he did that. Okay. Um and at that time, he was also dating, there was a very uh, famous British actress called Diana Dawes. She was like the Marilyn Monroe of, of the UK. Hmm. Um, and he was dating her. Your dad was. Yes. So she could have been your mom. <laughs> so, <laughs> that would have been, yeah.
0: And your mother was also a model, right? My
1: mother, my mother was a model. Um, she was a model in the 60s. Yeah. Um, and she, yeah, she was, she was quite a big model in the 60s. Did you see your parents a lot as a child? You know, I grew up, so um, I had a kind of a strange mix in my childhood. So I lived in in the U.K. until I was eight, and then we moved to Beverly Hills. Uh, I lived in Beverly Hills from when I was eight until I was 16, and then we moved back to the U.K. And what precipitated
0: that move?
1: My father was the CEO of Fidel Sassoon, um, and he took over Fidel Sassoon when they had one salon in London. He was friends with Fidel— and Fidel said to him, you know, I have this salon that's packed, but I can't make money. And so my dad bought into the business um and became the CEO. And then in the 70s they decided to move the head offices to LA. And we all we all moved out to LA.
0: Did you have a crazy haircut as a
1: child? I've had some strange haircuts as a child. Yes, I definitely had the well, I had the great Sassoon Bob. Yeah, and I remember actually, you know, I grew up in the salons. And I remember, you know, we used to like hang out in the salons. I spent a lot of time in there as a kid. My
0: grandmother was a a hairstylist and used to inflict those Vidal Sassoon haircuts
1: on me (laughs) as a child.
0: It was traumatic, I have to
1: say. Yeah, And they literally developed the shampoo in their friend's garage, put some almond scent in it.
0: So we'll get back to this in a second, but it sounds like your father... Gave you the model for what your future business moves might be like.
1: Yeah, my father was definitely my mentor. Um, and what was interesting, you know, growing up, he didn't treat me any differently than my brothers. Um, I had the same amount of pressure to work and to do something. And, you know, my dad loved business. He was a true entrepreneur. And so we, the family discussions at the dinner table were always around business. So I guess just growing up, you absorb it.
0: So did you always know, I'm going to be a businesswoman?
1: I didn't. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I was a very troubled teen. My mother was uh, completely insane, um, was alcoholic and uh, addict, and like, like crazy behavior when we were growing up. Um, so I did terribly in school. I left school with no qualifications. I didn't even graduate high school if you compare it to like, America. Um, and I didn't go to college. And... So I but I always love fashion. Right? So and as a young girl I would play with clothes and at school I would do makeovers and in those days they weren't even call makeover. I don't know. We didn't know what to call them, but I would, you know, re- restyle people and do their makeup. Um, and I just knew I wanted to be in the fashion business, but I didn't know how or what I would do. I got a job at a multi-brand store in London called Browns and I worked on the shop floor. What did you learn on the shop floor? You know what? I I hated it when I was doing it. I was like, I don't want to be here. I want to be doing something else. And then when I founded Jimmy Choo, I realized how valuable that was because I knew how to do everything in the store. You learn how to organize the stock room. You learn how to serve a customer. You know, when Jimmy Choo opened, I served customers. I cleaned the store. I, you know, I did everything. So
0: because you had to or because you felt that that was something you needed to know how to do to run the business better
1: oh because i had to we were on a we were on a very tight budget let's go
0: through your actual trajectory so you were working at brown's and then where'd you go
1: um from there i worked for a pr firm um and i was there for about a year and then i realized there was a magazine opening in london called mirabella
0: was that the uk version of the american mirabella
1: yes yeah and what year was that 1989 and
0: can most people are not familiar with Mirabella and the beauty of that magazine. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it?
1: So Grace Mirabella um, left Vogue and she was the founder of her own magazine, which was very successful in um, the U.S. So they decided to launch it in the U.K. I remember when I was working at a PR company, hearing about it and then reading all the literature they were sending out about it. Um, And I thought, you know what, this is, I want to be on the other side of the fence. I want to be a fashion editor rather than pushing, you know, the product to get people to write about it. I want to be on the the side deciding what I'm going to write about. Um, So I applied to be the assistant to the fashion editor, who is actually a very famous fashion editor called Caroline Baker. And she was one of the creative people at Nova and did like really pioneering shoots um, and to my shock, she chose me. <laughs> so Why do you think play? she chose you? I don't know. I think you know. It was that was one of my first lessons. I really researched the magazine and the philosophy and the type of woman it was and what they wanted to write about. Um, and I really researched what they were looking for and studied it. And so I was kind of, I was very prepared when I went in for the interview.
0: What's something that you learned at Mirabella? I'm assuming, I'll just assume, that you took something from every place that we're going to talk about. So what's something that you took from Mirabella?
1: Um, So, you know, working for Caroline was a great experience. I really learned how to uh, pull a shoot together, style a shoot, um, be organized, call, you know, call things in book things in and out so I really learned how to be a fashion assistant in that job unfortunately it folded while I was there it didn't last and when it folded I actually got a call from Vogue um, said the fashion director here at Vogue is looking for an assistant where you come in for an interview so I ended up obviously did a good enough job I ended up getting headhunted what was your favorite shoot you did? We went trekking in the Himalayas. We had Sherpas carrying Vogue trunks up, you know, the Himalayas. And we walked, you know, seven hours all day, you know, to get to one location to take a picture. Who who was the photographer? That was Peter Lindbergh. Yeah. That's that was, a very famous
0: photo shoot. That was, yeah, yeah. That
1: was amazing. You know, we shot with Herb Ritz on the beach in Malibu. We shot with Patrick de Marchellier. And, you know, it was it was a very special time. Did you feel at the time that it was special? Were you aware no, that it was special? I had no, no. At the at the time, you don't realize that you're working with like these. When I look back at these incredible photographers, and it was also the day of the supermodel. Mm. Um, so we worked with, you know, Helena Christensen and uh, Christy Turlington and yeah, you know, and Elle McPherson and Cindy Crawford, and yeah, it was all all the supermodels.
0: At that time in your life, were you still partying a lot? Was it still
1: yes a big part uh, of your life? I didn't. I didn't get sober until 1995, so I had six more years of partying at that point. Um, but you know, I was what the, I was what you call a functional addict. Um, you know, I could go out and still show up for work, and I guess you can do that when you're when you're young. What were you addicted to? Um, so I was addicted to alcohol, cocaine. But to be honest with you, I would anything you gave me, ecstasy. Um, you know, anything you gave me, I would have taken it. And that was some. That was sort of part of that culture. Um, I think no. I think it's. It was. I mean, it's in the fashion industry. But I. I didn't take it because I was in the fashion industry. Um, I would have taken it anyway. Right. So I. I can't really blame it on the industry or say it was because I was in the fashion industry.
0: So you're 21 at that time. What's your personal life like aside um, from you're partying a lot? Well, that, that's hard?
1: about it. Partying, working. Um, yeah, and then eventually, so I was at Vogue for five years, um, and I became the accessories editor, um, and then that's that's how I discovered Jimmy Choo. So you were reporting on Jimmy, and yeah, well, Jimmy's an, it was an interesting story. So you, you're prob- you probably don't remember; you're too young. But in the early nineties. There was one shoe designer. It was called Manolo Blahnik. Yes. So really, there wasn't a lot of choice. And there was a cobbler in the East End called Jimmy Choo. He wasn't designing collections. He wasn't selling the collections anywhere. But if you went down to his studio, he could make a pair of shoes. Mm. So he was making shoes for the local flea market. And he was making shoes. He had a few private clients, but it was very basic. It was like you could come in and you could get a pump or you could get a sling back. And he would make it in a... Matching color to go with lady, blah, blahs, you know, ball gown. That was about it so i'd go down to his studio and i'd sit with him and we'd make things for shoots i'd say okay jimmy i'm doing um a gladiator story and i want a gladiator sandal and i want it in silver metallic and i want studs here and so he'd make it i'd photograph it and i'd put his name in vogue and there were other fashion editors doing this at the same time uh, from other magazines so his name became known but there was Absolutely no business at all. I mean, the place that he worked, I mean, it was like a Dickensian disused garage, which was, Mm -hmm. you know, now the area and Hackney has been gentrified, but it was like going to the meatpacking district in the early 80s. It was really dangerous. I mean, his assistant got mugged for her Chinese takeaway.
0: So if somebody saw those gladiator sandals in Vogue, they couldn't buy them?
1: They'd have to special order them. And he he would do a home visit. Hmm. um, Or you could go to his studio, which was probably not recommended, but he did home visits.
0: So at what point did you have the idea, oh, this guy might be a good investment for me?
1: Well, I thought, you know, I thought having the name in Vogue all the time, there was name recognition for sure. So I thought, what a great platform to start a business company. The name is known, but there's absolutely no business there. So, my idea was, I went to him and I said, look, I will raise the money to do this, Um, we'll become 50-50 partners, I'll find um, factories in Italy to produce the goods, I can do everything, so I can do the PR, I can wholesale the collection, I can open stores, all you have to do is design the collection." So I went and I borrowed 150,000 pounds from my father, which is probably like $300,000 in today's US currency. Um, And we became 50, 50 partners. But in the beginning, I was still thinking Jimmy was gonna design the collection. And so I kept saying to Jimmy, okay, I've got found a couple of factories, where are the sketches? Where are the sketches? And the sketches never arrived. And then I got so desperate, I even offered to pay him a thousand pounds for a sketch. And the sketches still never arrived. And then the penny dropped. I was like, oh, my God, I was designing the shoe. I didn't even realize it. And so I said, you know what, I'm... I cannot lose my father's money. I was like, I was literally up at night, sweating with anxiety about losing my dad's money. And I was like, I cannot do. It. I'm going to have to do this. So, I, so his niece was working for him in the studio, and I said, you know, can you come and can you sketch? And I said, can you put my thoughts on paper? She said yes. So I would like just like spew out all my ideas. She would sketch them up, and then we'd take the sketches to the factory in Italy. What would have happened if you had lost your father's money? I would have been mortified. It's much worse. So losing. it was
0: mostly just embarrassment.
1: Yeah. And, and it would have hurt him financially. Yeah. Um, you did know, he expect you to pay him back? Um, I did pay him back. Well, he was also, he was a shareholder in the company. Um, and he said it was the best investment out of all the investments he ever made in his life. He made more money out of that company than anything else. Nice. Yes. So it was a good <laughs> outcome.
0: Were you sober yet? Or are you still struggling? Um, yes, so struggling?
1: 95. So I was at Vogue for five years. 95, um, I had the idea to start the company. and But then I got fired from Vogue because the partying was, was out of control. So I was getting to the point where I was really tired um, and I was coming in late, kind of going home early, couldn't get it together. And I remember I walked in one day and I was late again and there was this amazing woman uh, called Anna Harvey who recently passed away Um, and she was deputy editor and she called me into her office and she was very British about it and she said, Tamara, we think you've outgrown your job (laughs) Did you understand that to mean what it meant? I (gasps) totally understood what she was saying and and I swear I had the worst hangover of my life and I was like I was just so relieved to go home and get back into bed (laughs) And how did that feel? What did you think? think? <laughs> so that first day I was like so relieved I could just go home and get back into bed and then I was like panicked. I was like it was the fear that I needed to motivate me. I called Jimmy and went and took a meeting with Jimmy and I said, This is my plan right and then I remember saying to him, I'm just going away for a month, travelling for a month and I'll be back and when I did I went and checked myself into rehab.
0: Wow, did you tell anybody you were checking I didn't tell yourself anybody.
1: I didn't tell soul because I didn't want you didn't tell your family. Um, The only yes, I told my parents who did not understand, and they said if you if you go to rehab, you'll be branded a junkie. No one will ever want to talk to you again. Wow, yeah, they were they just didn't get it, Um, and I guess there was a lot of shame and stigma for that generation around admitting that anything was wrong. And I didn't tell any of my friends. I didn't want them to try and persuade me not to do it. So I went and I checked in by myself. Um, and Did you ever think you might not get sober? Um, you know, the, the, as soon as I got fired, I knew I had to get sober. I was scared enough. I was really, you know, you need to be scared enough to make a change. And I thought, well, where is my life going to end up? What am I going to be doing? I'm going to be in my 30s. I'm going to be broke I'm going to have, like, no one in my life. I'm, I'm going to be single. I'm not going to have kids. I'm like, like the fear exploded.
0: You're sober. You come
1: back from your stint.
0: You you have your father's money. At, and then how long does it take to get those shoes in stores?
1: So I came out in uh, September 95. And then the following spring in 97, we had a collection out. And that was the collection you had designed, and that was a collection, yeah, that I had designed, and how the, did it feel to see your collection um, well, the first one didn't work so well, and then I, and then I sort of I went back to the drawing board and I started to do research. This was another lesson about doing research. I started to like vintage shop, I started to put mood boards together, and I started to create stories. And then those were the shoes that really took off. So spring 98 was our really a breakthrough moment. Um, I remember Saks coming in to see the collection and, and ordering, like putting in a big order and literally wanted to like go and crack open the champagne afterwards. That was, that was such but a you breakthrough. But But I couldn't. Right? <laughs> so what did you do to celebrate? So no, I don't remember what we did to celebrate, but that was like, that was a big breakthrough for us. Did you call your dad? Absolutely. And what did oh, say? Oh, my dad used to call me every day. Really? I mean, yeah, he was like, what are the numbers today? You know, he'd check the numbers every day. Is your dad alive? Unfortunately, he passed away in 2004, and he was chairman of Jimmy Choo um, until he passed away. Oh. And is your mom yeah. alive as well? She is alive. Were yes. they married the whole time? Yes. They were married 40 years. Wow. Yeah.
0: And, and did they ever say they were proud of
1: you in the end? My dad did. My mother didn't. Really? No. My mother's my mother's a very unwell person. Um and she would I think actually like an uh, extreme Still? narcissist, yes. Yeah. And she would actually tell people that she ran Jimmy Choo and that she would just send me out as a PR stunt. How did that feel? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. How did you deal um, with that when somebody crushing. would tell you that story? You know what, that that kind of thing is absolutely crushing because you work so hard and all you want is approval from your parents. Um but I definitely, you know, I think in life, if you have one good parent, you're okay. I had one amazing parent. So Jimmy Choo is chugging along. Were you married yet? Um, in 2001, yes, I was married. I, got, I was only married a year. How did you meet your husband? Um, I met him in through friends in, in the program in AA. So did
0: you stay in AA?
1: I'm still the, in it. You're still in I'm it? I'm
0: still in it. How often do you attend 24 meetings? years.
1: 24 years. Yeah.
0: Wow, what would you say to someone who who might need to hear that they needed to
1: go to AA? Um, I well, every situation is different, you know, and I really believe that the opposite of the of addiction is connection. Um, so there used to be this idea about tough love: don't talk to the addict, cut them off bring them to their knees, make it painful enough to, for them to get better. And I don't really believe that's the way. I think if someone was using, I'd probably go over and I'd probably just sit with them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How many children do you have? I have one child. And what's her name? Um, she's called Minty Mellon. Uh, and she's 16 about to turn 17. And how has it been raising her? I split up with her, uh, Matthew, her dad, in when she was one in, in 2003. Up until two years ago, it was very much Minty and I together. But I was a single mother until I met my partner, Michael. Uh, What's she like? Um, Minty is... um, Oh, God, it can make me cry to talk about my daughter. (laughs) Um, Minty's just an incredible kid. She's um, really bright. She's really kind. Um, She's much more mature and much more thoughtful than I was at her age. Did you feel like you had to make up
0: for the kind of mother you had?
1: Yes. I I absolutely wanted to be a very, very different mother. And I know that sometimes I look and I'm like, oh, God, I did that so wrong. Or, you know, I mean, but hopefully, like Minty, she feels loved. She feels love from me, which is what I never felt. Do
0: you ever talk to her about
1: your childhood and the way it affects her childhood? I'm very, very very honest with her
0: yeah when your mom would take credit for the company um, did you ever confront her how did you guys resolve that
1: um, so I haven't spoken to my mother since um, 2005 um, we actually ended up in a court case in a lawsuit so the last time I saw her was in 2009 in, in court how does it feel not to speak to your mother um <sighs> You know, people say to me, Well, don't you want to reconcile? And I'm like, you know, it's very hard to reconcile with somebody that's never loved you. Right? So I don't feel a loss. I think I mourned it while I was in it because when you're when you're younger and you want your parents' approval and your and their love and you never get it. So I think I probably mourned that in it. And then when I decided to actually um cut myself off. It was actually just a a huge relief that I didn't have to deal with the drama, the insanity, the problems all the time.
0: Coming up, Tamara explains what it was like to start her professional life all over again at 44, and what it's like to cry uncontrollably at yoga. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays on Thursdays. I'm talking with Tamara Mellon. She's the founder and shoe designer at TamaraMellon.com, a website that sells luxury shoes direct to consumers. Back in the 90s, she co-founded the luxury shoe brand, Jimmy Choo. The company was wildly successful, but in 2011, she sold her stake in the company. She says private equity firms that had invested over the years had changed the culture and the shoes so
1: much that she walked away from the company she founded. I sold Jimmy Choo in 2011, um, and I I really left at the end because I wanted to create a a very different type of company with a very different culture. Having private equity in it for so long and four different firms, it became a culture that I just wasn't proud of um, because it became all about – you know, margins, profits, um, where I felt, you know, the profits were very healthy. You didn't need to squeeze it anymore. It was more about um, taking care of people. You know, all the people were burnt out, underpaid. Uh, The quality of the goods went down, that we were told to use cheaper leather all the time. And so I became embarrassed to stand next to the product. Um, And the culture became very much uh, sort of like a boys club. Um, And so I thought, you know what, I'm just... I'm probably, I'm just young enough to leave and start again. How old were you? Um, So I was 44 when I left.
0: Why did you feel that you were just young enough? What what about 44 would have been I don't know. I felt like
1: it was, I don't know. I felt (laughs) like, you know, it's it's hard to start again as you get older. Why, do you think? uh, You know, it takes an enormous amount of energy to start something. It's like a Herculean effort to get something off the ground.
0: So how did you gather the the fearlessness to do it again
1: you know it was really more about my soul um, that I knew I had to do it Um, I had to I didn't want what Jimmy Choo had become internally to be the legacy that I left Um, And I wanted to create a company with a very different culture, a culture that supported women, was um, a kinder culture, um, and also a culture that really cared about the customer as well. And I had to find a team of believers, right? I had to have people that really believed in me and believed in this.
0: A team of believers. I like that term. How does one go about finding that team?
1: It's, it's, it's not, it's hard. I mean, my CEO, I knew when I met her. I was like, I have, I have to work with this woman. She's such a rock star. Yeah, so, um, so I wanted a female CEO because I wanted to build a female team. Why? You know, having have I realized that there's so many myths about women in business that are just not true. Like what? Um, like, so she's a diva. She's a bit she's difficult if she's if she's successful, she's got to be difficult,
0: like the leader of the company or yeah yeah,
1: you know, and I always felt there was this with the private equity that I was working with at Jimmy Choo, there was this fear around me, and you know fear that you couldn't handle the leadership position, or what was the fear? Fear of just me being a woman, they were like, well, how can somebody be that successful that young and I'm just going to say this I'm going to put it out there you know when I look back at pictures of myself I'm like Ashley you were really attractive I never <laughs> knew it at the time I had no idea I wish I'd known um, and I'm like oh wow you were really attractive when you were young you know and you know whenever I put an idea out it was like it was sort of double checked with the men is this a good idea um, it was a very patronizing attitude it was a very like boys club um, and this was the investors? Those were the private equity company and the investors. And point? if you think I had also, I had 10 of them on my board. I was the only woman on the board. I just think there was a historical bias, probably that they didn't even, when they were not even conscious of.
0: Being in a room full of men as the only woman on the board, how did you psych yourself up to deal with that?
1: Um, you, you know, it not well. Um, I was very stressed. I had a lot of anxiety. You know, I just had a lot of confusion of why why are they so tough on me? Like, why why are they being so rude to me all the time? Why are they being so aggressive with me all the time? Like, what is it?
0: Did you dress differently for those board meetings? Did you ever think about your appearance or your self-presentation and how that might affect your reception in the room?
1: Um, I still I dress I dress very feminine. Um, I didn't dress more masculine to go to them. Jimmy Choo was a, an incredibly sexy brand,
0: you know. Yes. I associate it with some of the sexiest photographers of the time, and um, the campaigns were not deviant, but like definitely Helmut Newton inflected. Um, I, yeah,
1: who's one of my favorite photographers. Yeah,
0: and it seems like that was a big part of the identity. What role has sex played in your life, in terms of how it informed that brand? But just like, how does it? How do how do you think about sex?
1: Um, so I guess well, it, it was at a time, I launched the company in what is now called the Naughty Nineties, right? so that was what it was, it was it was all about at the moment. I mean, to express my sexuality, I always found that I wanted to show a woman though in a very empowered place in it, and not in a submissive um role or an, or uh look like she's an object. Um so if you look at Helmut Newton's work the woman is very strong. Um and interestingly in Helmut Newton's work shoes and high heels play play a, <laughs> like part. a large yes.
0: part in the sexuality of those images. For those of you who are not familiar with Helmut Newton's work it's it's very S&M inflected um the the Shoe itself seems to be an object of fetish in the photography itself, and then there is a there's a complicated relationship between the woman wearing those shoes and the way she's depicted in those photographs. That I think translates to Jimmy Choo. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that dominance, the female dominance, the high heel, the way that you thought about that.
1: Well, I always wanted the woman when I when I was designing for the woman. Um, or creating the images, like I said, I always wanted her to be strong. Like you would never see an image where she looks submissive. And I think that's that's what Jimmy Choo was about. You know, it was very much, you know it was it was a part of me, like my my blood and sweat, you know my you know ran through that business, and it was very much my vision, my creative vision. And, that, you know, if you look at the Tamara Melon brand today, you can see the images that we create of women. You know, they're very powerful women.
0: How do you think a powerful woman needs to present herself?
1: Confidence. I think it's internal. Um, it's, Can it be cultivated? Absolutely. How? I've I've become a lot more confident. Uh, um, and I think, I guess you just become more confident as you get older because you just don't give a shit anymore. Right? <laughs> you become more rebellious as you get older because you don't care. Um, and, I, you know, there's, there's there's a lot of ways. Um, and here's, here's one of my kind of life hacks for you is meditation. Um, so I've... So I have learned over the years to actually just like stop and breathe. Um, and if, I'd wish that I had discovered meditation 20 years ago. And do you think that that's
0: made you more confident or more... Absolutely. Don't give a shit about the critics or...
1: Um, I think that comes with age. Um, but I think what does help is, you know, I used to get very, very stressed and a lot of anxiety. I would basically just set off my flight or fight response, you know, and it'd be like a runaway train, right? Like when you just, you can't breathe and you're panicking. And, you know, I would do everything on adrenaline, like every effort was made with like a huge adrenaline push and a huge stress. And what I've learned to do over the years when I feel myself set that off is like, be very conscious of that moment. Stop. Breathe, even if it's like do a breathing exercise for three minutes, you completely change your whole um, nervous system, right? You want to regulate your nervous system, and that changes your thinking.
0: What's a specific thing that sets you off into that adrenaline rush?
1: It can be, it can be waking up in the morning and looking at my calendar.
0: I'm having it be too Rachel, full.
1: You have it be too full, and then you're like, Ugh! you know, panic. Right. I'm rushing. And then, OK, so here's an example. I had a moment the other day where I was really stressed. We're we're, we're fundraising right now. We're raising the Series C, which is incredibly stressful. I was getting min- trying to get minty on college tours, trying to figure out spring break, trying to, you know, plus, by the way, you know, while we're raising money, we have to do our day job, too, right? I was sitting in my bathroom at home and I was so stressed, I was crying. And I thought, okay, this is is crazy. So I did a 10-minute meditation and I just lay on the floor and I followed the breathing exercise. I listened to the meditation and after 10 minutes, I completely changed how I felt. And I got up and I was like, wow, I got myself in a crazy state for no reason. And just because I just was breathing. And I was much calmer. And I went through the rest of the day completely calm and managed to do everything I needed to do. So 15 years ago, I didn't know about that. I would have spent the whole day in a state of anxiety and pumping cortisol around my system and then feeling toxic and exhausted at the end of the day.
0: Anything else you use to calm down? Uh, CBD.
1: Um really what kind CBD oil Lord Jones yeah CBD oil I take that um at night with a hot bath with lavender oil um and I do I've discovered every night every, every night yeah I'll take I take the tincture I put it under my tongue um and I'll lay in a yeah hot bath with some lavender oil so it smells nice and it's relaxing that's kind of my nightly routine to help me like just relax before I go to bed. It's like the end of the day. Do you exercise? I exercise. um, And one thing I've discovered recently is kundalini yoga. Hmm. Um, That has been a game changer for me. How often do you do that? Um, So right now I do it once a week. um, But I'd like to to do more of it. So apparently when you do kundalini yoga it releases oxytocin in your system which is the chemical you get from being hugged.
0: And breastfeeding.
1: And breastfeeding. Yeah. Yeah. So the first time I did it I was in floods of tears. I was like, oh, my God, people are going to think something wrong with me in this like yoga class. I literally couldn't stop crying. And then I spoke to the instructor afterwards, and she was like, don't worry, I cried for the first four years. Really? <laughs> yes. Wow, I want to try that. Thank you for being here today, Tamara. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been great. Working-
0: That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was produced by Chris Neary and was edited by Lynn Levy with mixing by Sam Baer. Our theme song is 9 to 5 by the one and only Dolly Park.
1: Yeah, you, well, two, three, buddy,
0: Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.